So, last week, we talked about, uh, what did we talk about last week? Does everybody know? Does anybody know? Can you tell me? We talked about sex because this is the sex class. That's correct. Sex in the city of God. Uh, but no, actually there were two things in particular that we really focused on last week. One of those was sexual desire, distinguishing two things. One, sexual desire or sexuality desire that God made us man and woman and a bonded community is the key of what we desire. And that's the truth of the center of it all. And that's the most important thing for us is to recognize sexual desire. It's separated from the desire for sex, which is the other thing. But what happens is oftentimes what we put that, we turn it on its head, and desire for sex is everything, and somehow sex is supposed to make relationship, and none of that actually works. And so we covered some of those things last week and uh, um, recognized that the most important thing is understanding sexual, sexual desire and how God made us. And uh, so we move on from here to another topic, and that is from Adam's rib to women's lib. So that's, that's kind of the focus that we're going, going at today is uh, from Adam's rib to women's lib. And so particularly for you women in the room, uh, this will be uh, quite the uh, discussion, I'm sure. And I, and I do hope that you uh, ask some questions as you go. really appreciate Tara's questions last week. So uh, y'all remember to uh, insert your questions, uh, assert yourself, raise your hand, do that wavy, shaky thing, and I'll be like, oh, I know what that is. Uh, and we'll just go from there. Is that cool? So some of you are also sitting here going, hey, I came here, and I've been wanting to get to this thing. There's some things on my mind. I want, to, I want us to get to that topic, and I know we're going to go there probably, but why are we not there yet? Well, just be patient. Be patient. Because as I've been saying, what we're really trying to do right now is get through the fundamentals, the foundations. If we don't build the right foundations, these questions can't be answered in a way in which you'll clearly understand or trust or believe what I have to say. So we have to really get that built up before we get to those really deep, difficult questions um, that you may have on your mind. Uh, the first thing we got to get into is some, some fundamental assertions uh, that we understand so far about sexuality. So I got a couple of review questions for us here, a little uh, uh, sharing back and forth uh, opportunity uh, that uh, I got, I'm going to ask you. So first is, this is a review in a way, you know, like your teacher has that review, you know, and you got your notes, you've been practicing, you've been studying, so it's a pop quiz. Uh, we call it the sex quiz. So, so what does it mean to be sexual? What does it mean to be sexual? What have we learned so far? Parker. Good, good. That's good. That's true. That's true. And what we recognize is it's uh, it, the first thing. I like what you said. The very first thing is a natural desire for one another to be together. Now, recognize we can't. We got to understand that if we don't get the idea that it's not necessarily you know you have male and female, but it doesn't have to be sexual. There are single people, and they have to recognize that they're complete as well without that experience. And so the, the reality being this desire for one another to be together, the desire for a bonded community. And we, know, we understood and we talked about how in the New Testament that was one of the most powerful examples of true healthy community, the bonded community of faith. And the knowing is a part of that. And then, of course, as you said, Parker, for many, most, the knowing and the level of sexual 
activity between a man and a woman is going to occur in the covenant of marriage. Um, so, uh, great, man. Anyone else want to add to that, or do you you, you feel like we, we, we've tackled that question? All right, next question. Is male and female simply biological? Renee says no. <laughs> and why do you say no, Renee? Because more than that, I mean, we're different on an emotional and a processing level. Like in some ways, well, it's not just biological differences. Yeah, that's good. Anyone else want to add to that? More differences. More differences that you uh, remember us talking about or even for your own self so you understand. Um, there's different roles that go with men and women. Roles. Oh, getting into the roles discussion, huh? All right, yeah, actually, it's kind of funny that you would say that because that's partly what we're going to be talking about today is this whole roles thing, you know. How, how does that play itself out? And really, what, what do we think about this? So uh, let's go to the next question. Do or should gender necessitate set roles in a church? Aha. Uh-huh. Ah. Do... Or should gender necessitate set roles in a church? Ladies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. You say, say no. Okay, right. So, so uh, uh, right, right is in. That's your thought, and that's what you feel, and 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 you can you can throw that out. So this is a difficult question, is it not? Is This is a difficult question, a very difficult question. In fact, it's a question of debate in and out of the church. Roles, gender differences, and roles. What does, it, what does the Bible have to say? What can we learn about that? How does it all go? And so that's really what we're going to be delving into today. Um, you know, the difficulty in this is that you would likely, based on the stances that you have... Um, and some of you just don't have necessarily fully a great, you know, real intense stance, and perhaps by the time we leave, you'll have formed something. Uh, but we have all kinds of views, patriarchal views, matriarchal views, chauvinist views, feminist views, traditionalist views, the contemporary views, the extreme feminist views. I mean, we got them all over the map, guys, all over the map. And so we want to try to find out fundamentally what can we learn from Scripture when it comes to this stuff. And perhaps... What can we all come to come to terms on based on the context of the scriptures themselves? Because often, uh, often that's really where the problem lies. So, it's very important for us to consider this question. And some of us think, oh, it's just a debate. You know, it's it's something maybe we'll never we'll never you know really settle on. You know, it's no big deal. But honestly, I, I really believe that we need to take and uh, put some considerable thought to this question. Uh, it's important that we answer these questions with considerable thought. Uh, the debates really hang on two areas, chauvinist and feminist ideas. Chauvinist and feminist ideas. And so how can we speak to our world if we don't understand what they're questioning in this area? Lots of questioning going on. Blaming, blaming going on, pointing fingers. And how do we answer in terms of what Scripture has to offer in terms of our worldview and the good news? 
So what does Scripture have to say in this in this way? Does Scripture really say that men are the rulers of everything and women are subject to them and all this other kind subject to them in all kinds of ways? Is that what Scripture really says? As many feminists believe. So some say it's minor, but it isn't. It's major, and that's why we're going to cover it today. Uh, the 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 bottom line of why this is important is because it, it, it hangs on the on the balance of our understanding of marriage, the value of marriage and our roles within marriage. Is it valid? Is marriage valid at all? It hangs on the idea of the gay lifestyle and why people would choose that kind of lifestyle. It hangs on the idea of, of other um, sexual uh, prescriptions that people would bring about for themselves as sick as bestiality, and anything related to different types of uh, uh, abnormal sexuality. What is perceived good and evil? We really need to understand this kind of stuff if we're going to come to, to terms with um, uh, having a voice in our culture and uh, uh, clearly having an understanding for ourselves. So we're going to talk about the clash of the titans. The titans, the big titans, the feminist and the chauvinists, the fight waged against one another, you know, uh, and, and, of course, a lot of times the issue is uh, related to extremes. But the way that we're going to do that is I'm going to discuss uh, points more in the way of kind of presenting an argument. So each section is going to kind of further take us deeper in rather than uh, it be in the sort of A, B, one, two, three kind of thing. I'm trying to kind of carry us deeper into the argument, and hopefully you can follow with me. So, first of all, I am a man. you agree with this? Uh, I am a man, and I'm talking about feminism. <laughs> Uh, you might look at this and go, you're going to be biased. This is not uh, really the right kind of way to go about this. Uh, how in the world can we trust what you have to say? Well, first of all, you'll agree with, I believe you'll agree with some, the directions that I'm going because I am not saying feminism is all bad. And I'm not saying uh, uh, um, all of it is a, is a terrible thing and is completely off. In fact, I have reasons to praise feminism. I have reasons to praise feminism. Uh, because we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are good and bad things about many of the things that we do, but we can't just throw everything out because some of it doesn't line up and some of it is bad. Okay? But we also can't just sit there and just accept them both and say, well, we'll just, we'll just accept this and this even though the two of them just don't work. So what we have to understand is some of it's good, and the reason why it's good is women's rights in times of cultural oppression. I mean, that, that, that's where the beginnings of feminism came. Women were being dominated, and they wanted to stand up for their rights in the time of, again, cultural oppression. This also empowers women to be an individual, which is very important. A woman needs to learn to be confident in herself and to be an individual and not seen as the property of a man as cultural culture would have it at different times. You're... You know, it's sometimes even still now people, you know, uh, associate a person with, well, you're the wife of, you know, uh, the girlfriend of. You know, it's kind of nice for people to say your name, right, <laughs> to know who you are, to recognize that you're a person and you're not necessarily the other side of this, this other guy, you know, or girl for that matter. <laughs> and so we have to ask fundamental questions about being and the, the, the questions that are asked here are, are we the cause of domination or oppression of women? Are men the cause of oppression and domination of women? 
Um, is the church the cause of domination and oppression of women? It's difficult for us to speak about feminism in terms of uh, general categories because there's a lot of different categories uh, when we talk about feminism. So I'm going to do the best I can to just kind of go with what kind of it entails that everyone would likely agree on in all of these various um, uh, different camps of feminism. So the first uh, kind of way that you have to look at any worldview is you have to ask three questions. Is it true? Is it helpful? And is it livable? So is the feminist assertion true, helpful, and livable? And it's, this is going to be the test of any given worldview. The first claim of, of feminism is that biology does not affect our roles. Biology does not affect our roles. And since the 60s, feminists have been closely uh, associated with modern androgynous movement. So it's, it's been, they, they tie that together. And you see what I'm talking about, about different kinds of directions we can go with this if we're not careful. Um, they say that it's not a question of male and female, but of personhood. And so there is an importance of recognizing persons, but you cannot understand persons without understanding male and female. What makes you a person, that person? I am a male person. I am a female person. There are differences between the two. Personhood is important, but separated from our sexes, male and female, the sexuality that God made us as, it's going to create all kinds of dangerous places to go. All kinds of dangerous places. And gender differences are extensive. We talked about this. We can go further into it if we need to, but gender differences are extensive and our roles are culturally induced. These are two different things. Roles are culturally induced. Gender differences are already implicit to who we are. Uh, they don't need to be received of how we are to act in the world. Roles are cultural. That doesn't tell us how ultimately we should act in the world based on the way our culture speaks. Uh, a great book to look at about some challenges with the idea of feminism uh, by a woman herself, so you could see that uh, I'm not the only person, uh, is... Uh, is a book called A Return to Modesty. A very straightforward talk, um, very uh, academic, and in some ways uh, shockingly uh, clear uh, in uncomfortable ways about these different understandings of uh, what it means uh, to be a male and a female and deal with these things, and also males and their responses to females and all these things in negative as well as positive ways that we can be to work together. And so you have a book that I would recommend, A Return to Modesty, uh, which is by Wendy Shalott. She is a, a Jewish girl. Uh, and I believe the book is in our library, if I remember right. There is the book right there. He wants to show everybody. So scripture states, what does scripture state? Okay. We know what Wendy Shalott states if you read her book, but what does scripture state? that male and, they, they, It states that male and female are unique from one another. Male is the hunter-gatherer, and the female and the female is the mother and the nurturer by nature. Why? Woman, one possessing womb, <laughs> naturally desire to nurture because of that gift. Uh, male, the hunter and the gatherer type, because he's the one that's to go out and provide and to work with his hands, and we see that in Scripture. The curse affected everything. It affected man's work, and it affected woman's childbearing. So that's claim number one. Biology does not affect our roles. What's our answer? 
incorrect. It does. Biology does affect our roles. Okay, the second claim uh, that we would have on the broader scale in the feminist uh, agenda is that gender differences are not so different. So just tell that to the boy who was raised as a girl. If you would like to read an interesting read, it would be The Way Nature Made Him. I've heard about this guy. He just pretends he's a girl in a boy's body because he likes clothes, Barbie dolls, dressing women's clothing, and just basically put on makeup and everything. Yeah, well, that's actually not the case uh, that he pretends. He does not pretend this. Uh, it's a very sad story. Uh, it is a true story. It is a story of science going awry. Uh, a person that decided to make an experiment out of a, out of a botched circumcision. And told the parents, uh, we've got to make a decision. And the parents decide, oh, what we'll do is, because this scientific uh, uh, study, uh, the person wanting to lead this, very interested in, in, in heading it up, thinking it was going to be this big thing for him to there'll be a breakthrough, decides to say, what we'll do is, uh, he won't know the difference. We will raise him as a girl, and I'll help you, and I'll study him as you go. And we'll see there'll be no difference. Because of a bad circumcision, yes, Jordan. You did. Okay. How bad are we talking like he is neutered? Uh, all I know is it's a botched circumcision to the degree that they decide to uh, check, to make it make it work out where they want to deceive this young man into believing that he is a girl. And it's a sad story. Um, and it, it, it's dealt with in a very uh, uh, respectful way, dealing with the, the, the him going through this, him discovering this in time. All what we realize is this. I want to read this review. I think today... The idea of just deciding a boy could be raised as a girl with no ramifications is astounding. But the chief researcher in this case was able to convince academics all over the world that he was having success with Bruce Brenda, which is what they decided to name him, when the experiment was really a dismal failure. The real heartbreak, of course, is that not only was a scientist forcing an experiment that had every sign it was failing, it was occurring at the expense of one man's life. I think that's pretty powerful and pretty much clearly defines the second this second claim that says that there really isn't any difference when it comes down to the genders, the sexes. Uh, specifically, gender differences are not so different. Obviously, we've discovered they are very different, and uh, this young man suffered greatly and continues to. Think about that. Claim number three. Now, claim number three is that monotheistic faiths have brought about the abuse of women. That is to say, any faith that would claim there is one God, which is Islam and Christianity and Judaism, which we are Judeo-Christians, so there's a lot of ties into that, <laughs> would claim that they would claim that we brought about the abuse of women. It is the fault of these belief systems and therefore the fault of this Bible all right? So we have to explore that. They believe it's the basis of domination and hatred and the abuse of women throughout the world. They see that some of the Bible is written to justify men's sins through Scripture. Pretty strong claims. Pretty strong claims. Genesis 1 through 3 to them is the justification of this. Also, they go further and say that the Apostle Paul further supports that this great chauvinist pig 
from the New Testament. As you can read some of his text and become, if you don't understand him, very much a believer in thinking that he was a leader of all things, you know, sexist pigness, <laughs> if I could say that. <laughs> so many, uh, uh, you know, this is, this is a struggle that, that, that people face. In fact, maybe you yourself may face this if you've seen some of these things. You go, I don't get it. I, I, I want to find the justification of how this all works. But the question does, is, does Scripture actually do this? Does Scripture actually say this or assert this? Feminism is a reaction to evils made by paternal, hierarchical worldviews. This is true. It is the fault of men abusing their rights by justifying their sins. Now recognize, it's not the focus of Scripture rightly divided. Now the Bible tells us that we should study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so what's happening with these areas is Scripture is not rightly divided or rightly contextually um, understood. And therefore, people are taking text and making them fit their own ends when in reality that text never meant or intended that at all. And so we're going to get into those. So I applaud women for fighting this hierarchical worldview of, unfortunately, sometimes Christians that would say, this is the way it is, women. Line up with God. Get it right. When in reality, these men are the wrong ones because we can see as we look further that Christ does not in any way exemplify or embody that kind of attitude of dominating women in any given way. So the truth is we are from the get-go male or female. We can't become anything else. We are born as we are. Puberty, sexual experience, or marriage changes nothing about what sex we were born as. We will always be what we were born as, and that was God's intent. And any other way would work against the nature of what God's created us to be and will bring destruction upon our lives. Emil Brunner has a quote that shines light on our understanding of the reality of roles. Our sexuality penetrates the deepest metaphysical ground of our personality. As a result, the physical differences between man and woman are a parable of psychical and spiritual difference of a more ultimate nature. In other words, the differences that we've been made are for a reason and for a purpose that God intended and created that are to be celebrated, not to be fought against or thought that uh, perhaps we missed it here. The differences are good. It's the way that we look at these differences that matter. So equality of roles in and beyond the garden. We've gone through where feminists have taken things, how men have created that problem. And so what are the real roles in and beyond the garden? If we were to actually look at the context itself, uh, the Genesis assertions of the pre-fall environment. Sex roles are for procreation, family and children. We know this. This is review. You're going to remember this. <laughs> Shared equality. Both of us are image bearers. We see this. Both are equally blessed. Recognize the emphasis of both. <laughs> Equality in this difference. 
Both are equally good. Both are aware of God's divine desire. And both are given command to care for creation. And this kind of ruling that they've been given in caring is a benevolential type. It's to, be, it's to take care of gently and, and, and with respect and honor of what God has created and made. And in that, we are to both be a part, because we're both a part of creation, we both care for one another. Men and women are to mutually care for one another. That was a part of the assertions of Genesis. Both are responsible for their sin. Though if we want to really get technical, it's interesting that God really calls out Adam for his sin first. <laughs> but both are responsible. We see that when they're both kicked out of the garden. They're both expelled from the garden. Each are complementary to each other, male and female. Helper suitable. We talked all about that helper. What does it mean to be a helpmate? Helper suitable. And helper, if you remember, has no suggestion of inferiority. Now another word brings its ugly head to the forefront in this, in this debate, in this discussion. And that is the word subordination. Are there signs of subordination or role distinction in Genesis 1 through 3? Are there signs of this? Subordination, if we're to take it to at its uh, fundamental uh, definition, it would be it would be simply to be ordered under. To be ordered under. That's the definition. Theologians, many, would say there is evidence of subordination. And uh, here's some of the different things that they would say, as they would say why. And we're going to talk about each one of them, just as I talked about the various claims of the feminist um, ideology, if you were to play that out, the most uh, fundamental ones. Man was made first. First one. Man was made first. And so what they do is they're going to use the rights of the firstborn of Israel, which is to say that they have a greater stake in things and a greater, uh, um, what's the word called? Uh, not dowry, but the other word. Inheritance. Okay? The problem with that is that it fails to take into account God's way of looking at that cultural ideology. Because if you look at several accounts in scripture, and it's funny how God works that way. He breaks the cultural ideologies by deciding to go different and countercultural to it. And so we have these moments like Jacob and Esau, where Jacob gets the blessing and Esau's the firstborn. What happened there? God and set God set that up. David, David becomes the king. David's the least in his family, the least in his tribe. Gideon gets exalted. He's the least in his family, the least in his tribe. And we have this understanding of God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, right? And so he goes counter-cultural to the idea of cultural. So this question, uh, this statement that because man was made first doesn't hold water too strongly to God's ways and the way that God works himself, which God would not change his nature. 
So we have this case. And again, as I said, any time through here, if you want clarification or if you have a question, please ask. Um, we have Joseph, again, favorite of his father, the one that ends up saving his whole family. Very unique, very different situations, and God ordains these things. A second idea that would come from these theologians is that woman was made uniquely for the man. But what that fails to take into account is that a helpmate is a reciprocal reality. And if we're rational, we will clearly see this. You have to think rationally. Well, they'll say that, but let's play that out. Let's play that out. Man was made unique, a woman was made uniquely for the man. Okay, so what that means then is that the woman basically uh, was there for his purposes, but in no way did the man fulfill any purpose for the woman. She was just kind of there on the side. What we recognize is this entire text is about marriage. And this entire text is about the understanding of a man and a woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. All of the language speaks to the fact that it is a mutual understanding of one another. And gathering together uh, um, that each one uh, desire. And blessed by God equally. And so the, the, the next thing that might be said is woman gains her life from the man and is subordinate to him. So man was taken from dirt. Why is he not subordinate to the dirt? You have to take the rational argument and carry it out. Woman came from man. Man came from dirt. But man was given dominion over the earth. So that doesn't work, does it? So we have to walk that out and consider how it goes. The, the important thing that we, we should realize is that's not the point. Remember I told you it's a poem. There's, a, there, there's power in this. There's power in this poem. What we should recognize is God does, God creates life out of an inanimate object. And that's the value of this. Man was made from dirt and God breathed the breath of life into him and he became a living being. Woman came out of a bone of man, an inanimate object, and God's brought life into that inanimate object. So what are we really seeing here in this place is... Life itself, that's your blank. The important thing, excuse me, woo, the important thing in the creation of man and woman is life itself. God makes inanimate, animate. So we can take this further and we can look into the experience of where did we all come from? This is kind of where you get into that which came first, the chicken or the egg, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> how, how, how does this work with? Because, okay, so I came from my mother, and so did all of you. <laughs> so if you came from your mother, does that mean then that you're subordinate to your mother? Does that mean that all of a sudden that uh, uh, you're ruled over by your mom for your whole life? That woman then is now over us because they're the ones that birthed us, right? So we start looking into that and we see that this idea carried out does not work. The next one, Adam names the woman. Another assertion that's brought about in the idea of subordination found in this Genesis 1 through 3 text, Adam names the woman. Um, this is the strongest part of the subordination argument. It really is. 
It's the strongest part. There's, there's, some, uh, I, there's some connection in this. And before y'all shoot me, you know, recognize that I, I have more to say related to this. The key here is that Adam rules Eve. Uh, that they're saying is Adam rules Eve because he names her. You see, he names her that gives him power over her, right? Because he names her Eve. Well, the interesting thing is if you look at Genesis 1 through 3, there's no word Eve in there, is there? It says woman. Later on, after the fall, after the fall, Adam calls her Eve. Pretty interesting, huh, to note. So Adam rules Eve because he names her, perhaps, but this is after the fall. Things have changed. Things are not what they should be. So perhaps this does suggest subordination, but after sin entered the world. So the question we ask now is, are we really sexist pigs and sows? Do we have a a clear answer to that question yet? Are we just really sexist pigs and sows? Looking at all this stuff and the kind of ways that we come up with these ideas. There's a problem with words. They're really a bother sometimes. And we just, we'd rather just take it where it's at, read it, now yeah, that word's this, but the problem is there are many different definitions for words, especially in the Hebrew, and we need to know which one's being used to really understand what's being said. Words are tricky. Certain words like submission, subordination, and authority get mixed up with the present climate and we see them as negative. Negative words. They have to do with domination in our minds. They have to do with power. They have to do with unhealthy dependency. But what it is is that we forget the meaning of the word in its proper context. Uh, earlier we defined helpmate in a previous lecture, if you remember that, but now we're going to better define contextually subordination. It's a word that I've been throwing around. Um, the definition of subordination, you've heard it, I've shared it, to be ordered under. The author Stephen Clark, he wrote a book in response to um, the eruption of the sexual revolution. Many people wrote responses to the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and stuff like that. And men and women... Uh, his book is called Men and Women in Christ, and this is, this, is, this is what he quotes. The idea of being subordinate has to do with enabling, enabling a relationship with more than one person to help the complex relationship be productive and function together in unity or common cause. Let's unpack that. The reality is... in this, in this question, subordinate is not a bad word, is it? In this quote, subordinate, subordination is not a bad word. Because what we're saying is, I have chosen to be subordinate so that I can enable this relationship, and it has to be more than one person to deal with this being subordinate, so I can enable this relationship to function properly. Somebody has to do something in order for it to work. We can't all do the same thing, right? We, both, we all have responsibilities to make it work. And so this is what the idea of subordinate is the ordering properly to make it work. Uh, it's true in all cultures, this idea of subordination, some less beneficial than others, the way that some people obviously play it out. 
The idea is to help a complex relationship become productive and function together in unity. We all want that, don't we? So subordination in Scripture did not carry inferiority but a difference in gift. And the person subordinate can be in greater value than the one served. In other words, we play this out in my own relationship as campus pastor. I need some folks. I need Ben Welch. I really need him. Because you don't want to see me put together a design. You don't want to see me make a flyer and use my nothing in the way of artistic ability whatsoever and 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 say you know this this is this is uh, you know uh, my thing because I know that I need him our relationship in in his role as the person who does media is I need him and without him we would not do as well as a job in what we do for our ministry wouldn't we the same thing with Chachi I need him you know Paul when it comes to Paul my goodness, the guy that does the finances, I'd be in a mess if I didn't have Paul. Now, I might be the campus pastor, but I, I need Paul. And I'm not, I, he, he is a student. I am the, maybe you call me the boss, I'm the leader, whatever. But I don't look at that relationship as a, I'm over him in that way. I need him. I look, I look up to him in that area. You see what I mean? So it isn't necessarily this idea of inferiority. And you can be in greater value than the one that you're serving in, that, in the way that you do. You deal with the subordination. Every, the, the reality is this. And Chachi will laugh at me because I said the reality is this. Everybody is subordinate to somebody all of the time. Did, did you get that? Everybody is subordinate to somebody all of the time. So this is nature. This is the way it is. Because we are profoundly interdependent as human beings. We need each other. And God made it that way. Remember? We talked about bonded community, the nature of sexual desire and what that's about. It all works together. The conclusion of the matter is that subordination in Genesis 1 and 2 does not deal with domination or inequality. If we carry the idea out in the New Testament, then we see this submission that's talked about within community that we're called to in our service and in our roles. And again, it's not about domination and it's not about inequality. Paul uses a word that can create confusion if we don't understand it, which is headship. So what does Paul mean by that? We'll go there in a minute, but first... Let's look at subordination after the fall. Subordination more clearly exists after the fall. The way we uh, especially see the negative sides of subordination. Domination, oppression, inequality, they also exist after the fall. And as Christians, we should see what things after the fall should exist and what things should not exist. Question, should subordination, domination, oppression, or inequality exist? Yeah. 
should subordination, domination, oppression, or inequality exist? And what about the others? It could mean like not everyone's good, equally good at the same things. In that aspect, inequality should exist because that's what brings about subordination. Your lack of ability in one area makes you subordinate someone else in another area. But as far as rights go, you shouldn't be unequal. Yeah, so you're looking at the words, and I like how you're looking at it deeper and not just saying, well, what that word says to me is, well, in this case it would say, but in this case, no. You're right. Subordination, we've already discussed, is there. The understanding that we're not exactly the same in our roles is there, but inequality in a, in a, in a, in a negative nature of I'm better than you and all sort of kind of stuff, um, uh, in, in the sense that I'm male and you're female, these kind of things, is not good. But for the most part, we understand that domination and oppression have no place, right? And some of these things that we bring about and the way that we define these scriptures create domination and oppression. So... What does it really look like rightly? And in what form should it be carried out? These other things. Subordination. Well, I don't think any of those things according to our modern definitions should exist. Yeah, if we're going to look at it according to the way you look at it now, as Courtney, because it's all sound... Uh, cor- uh, blah, 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 blah. Certainly. <laughs> those all come across bad, don't they? Right. And in the bad way, you're right. They don't need to be existing at all, correct? Mm-hmm. Because God is good all the time. And he's not into that kind of thing uh, on the negative side, right? So if we look at this, how does it exist properly, okay? Uh, The one particularly we'll find subordination. Uh, Confidently we can say that domination, sexism, racism, inequality in that negative way, you know, all that stuff, it definitely shouldn't exist in Scripture and uh, it can't be justified by Scripture, okay? But what about subordination? Well, we know, we know that there are good things about subordination. So in a book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Personhood by John Piper and Wayne Gruden, uh, another response to the sexual revolution we have, <laughs> they suggest three types of subordination. And I really think these will shine some understanding uh, um, to this word for us where it won't, it won't uh, ring so um, uncomfortably in our heads. There are three types of subordination that they, cons- that they looked at and they studied as they look at culture and relationships. <laughs> the first one is oppressive subordination. Oppressive subordination, which is the use of force or power to dominate. Um, this is the idea of uh, what you see in history, the power, might makes right, that idea. Well, see what you can do about it. I'm bigger than you, so you can't tell me what to do. I've got the power because I'm strong. Okay? This is what we're talking about. I've got the economic power. I've got the political power. This kind of stuff. That idea itself is a negative. You would agree with me, correct? Oppressive power. Historically, though, guys tend to win at this game. We look in history. We see this. But we also look into current day and we see this in relationships. Oppressive subordination. Now, there's some women that can... I would never want to stand up against them. They would kick my butt. I mean, they're tough. You know, they work out, they're stacked. I mean, I'm, I, I'd be, I wouldn't want to mess with them. You know what I'm saying? And so, 
in some cases, this may not be true where a man can dominate over a woman, but if we look at the nature of how it carries itself out and statistics and such, we find, okay, that guys tend to be stronger and tend to be the domineering ones oftentimes in relationship. This not being necessarily a healthy thing because the great majority of spousal abuse is males to females. Oppressive subordination. Uh, it's ultimately and sadly a guy thing. When you look at the uh, understanding of rape that happens, it is most often it is by men and very, very um, um, seldom a woman over a man. And this is an oppressive subordination, obviously, that we need to uh, see God work in some way. It's a men's gig, oppressive subordination. Uh, it can exist, though, outside of male-female relationships. It isn't necessarily something that has to be carried on uh, within the confines of uh, m m you know, a men and women relating together. Uh, it was kind of hilarious, an example that uh, Brady gave about this idea. And he said that uh, his uh, kid, uh, Seth, came up to him and he asked him. Uh, Brady Bobbink is a, is a campus pastor from Western Washington University. He's one of my mentors. A great and awesome man. Uh, runs a very successful ministry up there. Around 500 or so students. But he, his son comes up to him and says... Dad, are you the boss? So he kind of sat there and took that question, and he's like, okay, what's, what's my son getting? <laughs> so he's, hesitantly he says, I guess, you know, God's the boss, but you know, he lets me play around with it, you know, this ministry, and kind of make some decisions, all that kind of stuff, you know, every now and I guess, I guess in a way you might, you might call me the boss. And his son said, wow, that's cool. It must be fun to boss all those people around. And, and the idea just, you know, coming out of there shows that just some people by nature, they've got this seed of oppressive subordination in them. And they need, to, they, they need some help. And again, I don't think that culture, current shows, and various things help with this. But that's just a funny example of the idea of oppressive subordination just being out there in a, in a less uh, intensely serious way, but where we can see that it's there and it exists. Uh, we need to train up a child in the way he should go, right? <sighs> and so the second kind of coordination, coordination, subordination is care subordination. And this uses the idea of headship. Uh, the head has a certain role. But the role is thoughtfully to protect and produce a care for the well-being of the people that, that, that are under them, that they're over. This is the idea of what a care subordination would be seen as. I, when I thought about this, what came to me event, immediately was a vassal lord. And if you understand your, you know, your history, it's these people that would basically say, hey, we will work the land exchange for you and your might, protecting us and taking care of us for doing so. And so these people willingly went into an agreement with the vassal lord who their pur his purpose was to protect them and to take care of them. 
And they said, we will serve you. That sounds a little bit, a lot like our relationship with God, actually, when you think about it. Yes, God, take care of us, protect us. We will give to you. You know, Paul himself talks about being a bondservant. Actually even goes so far as to call himself a slave to the Lord, willing slave um, to God, knowing that he's going to take care of and watch over him. And already has. Then we have this other kind of subordination, which is unity subordination. This is a subordination that's carried on for the sake of a higher cause. We can see this in the New Testament community of faith. You can look at scriptures like Ephesians 4.23 and 1 Peter 2.13 and you can see illustrations of this idea of a unity type of subordination or ordering under. The, this means that the greater cause is Jesus Christ. The greater cause is Jesus Christ so we will be subordinate for his sake. We will order ourselves in the way that we do in the community that we are with the roles that we take on for the sake of the cause of Christ that we be unified and not fighting with one another. So this involves obviously putting ourselves beneath and allowing God to help us to work through where we fit and in that submitting to that role. Ephesians 5.21 talks about submission to one another in all things in Christ. Again, a concept of unity subordination. This is how we have a healthy family, is unity subordination. There are times that men and women submit to one another in various ways for the sake of a cause. And it's important for us to recognize that. Care and unity subordination will often coexist. So you're going to see the two tend to uh, just connect together. They fit care subordination and unity subordination. But oppressive subordination is due to a lack of love. And oppressive subordination has no place. No place. Uh, examples of healthy subordination, if we were to look at these, these ideas of care subordination, unity subordination, co-mingled, is a child-parent relationship. A child-parent relationship, this mutual submission to one another. More so, the child ordering themselves underneath the parent to learn, right? To grow. But what happens sometimes is we rebel. Why? Because of our fallen nature. We don't want to listen to mom and dad anymore, even though they're trying to protect us and take care of us. A student to teacher. A congregation to a pastor. A pastor to, I mean a husband to a wife. Or wife to a husband. So these are all good things, but we have to deal with the post-fall environment. The curses. What did the curses do for all this? Ordering. Um, this understanding of roles. Curses of Genesis 3. First we have Adam and Eve, man and woman, naked and unashamed. They don't have any problem with the way things are and the way that, 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 that they look or anything like that. They're just loving what God's created. And then all of a sudden, after they eat of the forbidden fruit, they hide themselves. Because they have a psychological, emotional, and moral response of being naked and, unash and naked and ashamed now. 
The truth is God did not lose them, but they lost him. Who told you that you were naked and ashamed? God already knew. He wasn't like asking them a, 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 a question in the way of answer this question. It was, what, what have you done? This is what he means by this question. What have you done? There's only one way you would know this. Because you did what I told you not to do. And so here, there are consequences. And the result of Adam's sin is the curse. But let us know this, that the curse does not carry hostility. It's not God saying, ah, mm -mm -mm -mm, here's what's going to happen to you now. It doesn't carry hostility, but consequences on the action as a judge in a trial. It's not the idea of a parent articulating a correction out of anger, but a judge who articulates the facts. So because of your decision, this is the natural consequence you've brought upon yourself, not a punishment. It's important that we get that. Because too many people look at this idea as God punished us for what we did. It, there were, these things were established from the beginning. What was going to happen? The natural consequence. And God was trying to keep us from going into that. So he gave us the beautiful things of the garden. And he told us not to eat of the tree. He gave us every out. But we chose to walk out a, a, a direction that led us to the consequences of our actions. Which is this. Which was never God's intention. Never God's intention. But God has to honor what he's already set forth. Um, the curses. He cursed the snake. He cursed the ground. Or might, might, might actually say rightly, he did not curse that. The curse was the result of man's sin and this brought about curses on the snake and curses on the ground. He just declared the judgments. And then the woman... What was her, what was the curse she walked into by the consequences of her actions? To suffer in her role as a wife and a mother. Not just as a mother, but as a wife, and we're going to get there. Focuses, this focuses on her role as a wife and a mother, that she would suffer in childbearing and nurturing. That it would be a difficult thing, that it would be dangerous, painful, and sometimes even lead to death. And the man. Hard labor to provide. It used to be the nurturing of the garden. This beautiful garden that was taken care of and tended by you know, the dew that God had already set there. But now man would have to work very hard to provide. That's the consequence. That would be hard, heavy labor. Now the relationship is ultimately cursed because of separation from God. That's the reason why the curse exists. We decided to separate ourselves from God. Man did. Uh, let's take a break for a second. Um, I'll give you guys a little breather, maybe two or three minutes. And we'll come back and talk about the second part of the curse that we don't think about sometimes. Okay, so uh, the second uh, uh, result of the curse, one thing that we don't, think about enough actually likely is uh, Genesis 3.16b and that is where it says your desire will be for your husband and he 
will rule over you. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> we need to untangle, I think we need to untangle this diabolical text, don't we? Untangle this diabolical text. What do these two words mean? We have to unload desire and rule because those are the two ugly words in there. All right, well, maybe you don't think desire is a bad word, but rule definitely is not one you'd like to hear. So the word rule, let's start there. No matter what you do, no matter how you look at it, the Hebrew word carries the idea of conflict and compulsion. It's the bad news of rule. And it is where many men go as a result of Adam. Luke 22:24 gives us hope in our understanding that again this is a this is something spoken of by a judge as the consequences that we let ourselves into not God's intention. Luke 22:24 spoken of by Jesus himself. The same word rule is used but said this way, you are not to lord it over like the Gentiles do their people. So this is not God's intention. And Jesus makes it clear in that passage. This is a sinful response that God knew that men would step into. Now the word desire. Is it getting any better? The woman will sexually desire the man. That's what this, that's what this is saying. That's what the cono, it, it connotes. I always wanted to use that word. Connotes. <laughs> so the desire of Eve for Adam is negative. It's a negative desire. It's oppressed towards a mutual mastering. It is an idea of disunity. Remember, this is the curse. Why would you find anything good in it? Headship becomes dictatorship. And the woman wants to exert dominance over the man too. But, you know, really we see that regularly men rule women and the abused women regularly stay there in a sick codependency. Would you agree with me on that fact? That regularly we see this. Abused women regularly staying with abusive men in a sick codependency. A desire unhealthy. But this is more of a unilateral type of situation rather than codependent. It's uh, definitely unhealthy. Vulnerable to the strength and the domination of the male is the woman. And you hear this song, Stand By Your Man. Well, it's not that kind of stand by your man. It's that unhealthy side. The sad truth here is that men rule women often and women who are abused stay anyway in dependency. Yes, the sad truth is that men rule women often 
and women who are abused stay anyway in dependency. Some people would have a misconception and think that there was a benefit to the curse of the fall. Um, certain theologies uh, that are based on cults actually would say this, that the curse was a blessing. It gave us the ability to be. So without the curse, we would not exist. We would not be. So is there a benefit to the curse of the fall? And is our being here good in the fall? I ask you this question. Can a curse be good? Yes. I think the curse has some good points because because of it we get to be rescued through Christ Jesus. We get to develop a closer relationship with God in being separate from Him. If we were just naturally as children, we might take that for granted and uh, appreciate it a little less. Well, I would say that being on the other side of it, respecting and being um, um, ecstatic about the fact that God decided to give us another chance, uh, that is an awesome thing. But we wouldn't have had to have that chance if we didn't fall. And we would have been in a, in a utopia in such a way that we would never have questioned the idea of, well, if we would have fallen, then we would never have had this. So the truth is the curse is all bad, but God's response to us in the midst of the curse is a wonderful thing. But he didn't have to do that. <laughs> and he didn't go through the curse to get us there. That wasn't his intention. That was ours. So he was fixing our mistake. If you read Paradise Lost, you find this interesting twist that the devil's the hero and God's the bad guy. And this is what the idea of the fall in the sense of being a good thing would actually suggest. So it's clear that desire in the context that we look at here is negative. There is nothing positive in this. Rule is bad and desire is bad when we deal with the Genesis 3.16 uh, text. Um, those who are given to lesbianism and feminism would not like this text. The idea of ruling over and desiring your man. Because I don't need no man, right? That's the concept there. Again, a lot of this is negative, and I'm not saying that God intended this. Man has done this to himself. Do you have a question, Renee? Yes, I do. Uh, it, it would definitely it would definitely have likely come from misinterpretation of the Genesis text, specifically if it came from this one saying that the that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it came from this particular text, but it did come from the Genesis assertions that uh, you know we've mentioned where people have made claims that after we played after we've played it out, we've realized like in the very beginning, Genesis um, God says to the, says to the man and woman to multiply. And this is what is mainly focused on it. And so someone would just uh, simply assert, well, the whole point of it is to 
um, is just for multiplication and procreation, and there's no other reason that it would be good. The rest of the time, it would be considered a sinful thing if we saw it in any other way, if we saw it as pleasurable. What we have to forget, we can't forget is that God blessed the relationship of the man and woman, and part of the blessing was that knowing, if we look in the text, that knowing of one another, which is indeed sex. And so, yeah, it would come out of Genesis. It would come out of Genesis and a, and a misinterpretation of the text, indeed. So uh, let's 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 take this further, so we can really believe what the, that that this is what I, that this is true. There is something called the rule of general or next use when you're looking at uh, words, and it's very important to consider. And we'll find that it further supports it. What it basically says is, when you don't understand how a word is used by an author, then you find the way that they use it somewhere else in their text. And so we go further and see, well, how is it used here? Um, and so, in their other works as well, uh, that, that same author. And so Genesis 4-7 is the next time this is used. And so let's look at it. Genesis 4-7, you find you're in the situation of Cain being spoken to by God. If you know the story of Cain and Abel... Uh, Cain basically is angry with his brother and he is mad that God accepted his brother Abel's sacrifice. And in this moment, there is an a, a interaction where God and he speak and God is saying to him, knowing his heart, he says this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, the word desire, it desires to have you so you must rule it, the word rule. So we have the two words in one statement by God, Genesis 4, 7, in the same book. And so we know it's the same author in Genesis. And as we look at it, we discover sin is crouching at your door. It's the idea of an unhealthy desire, a snatching, a grabbing, right? It's crouching at your door and desires to have you. But you must rule it. And so you can see as you look at it that there's this mastery, this intention to master. Sin wants to master you, but you must master it. This ruling over through the desire that is, being, be, uh, that it, that is there by the other. So there's fighting. There's this uh, uh, juxtaposition occurring here between the two. You understand that and see it? So the rule has to do with dominating. We see that as we look in here. Rule it. Dominate sin so it doesn't dominate you. And in other words, do this so you don't murder your brother. You know, that's what he's, that's, this is an intense, this is an intense uh, statement. And desire is, is, is like sin is a predator. And it's asserting mastery over. See, in that sense, desire is about domination, isn't it? A woman to desire her husband is in that case, to deal with a trying to dominate over, to control the relationship, to want to um, uh, be in charge, that kind of stuff that comes in there. But then also the negative understanding of trying to keep something going that's uh, very negatively um, creating terrible pain in your life in the area of abuse. So the conclusion is... Uh, that uh, not not in that conclusion, but the conclusion is that chauvinism and fe fe chauvinism and feminism are manifestations of fallenness. 
So let's get into some hope here, okay? Part five, gender equality, subordination, and roles in the New Testament witness. See, the New Testament brings about something beautiful, something that God is established and set up in making things right because Jesus is on the scene. And Jesus is trying to get us right with the way that the intentions were, were made to be, right? So the general tone in the New Testament is that Jesus is a liberator. He confronts dominance in Hebrew culture. Time and time again, he speaks to the culture and says, yeah, that's what you think, but that's not really how it's supposed to be. And he corrects the leaders of the day, the patriarchal leadership of the day, and says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. He does weird things like approaching women in ways that would not naturally be considered appropriate in that culture, like talking to a woman at a well. These things would not be the way that, those, that, that a Hebrew would be in those days. Jesus would allow a woman to wipe his feet and, and to cry on her feet and all these things. And so there's this liberating freedom that Jesus has to bring to the women um, in the New Testament and also to all of us. John says, if you love God and you hate your neighbor, you're a liar. And so there's a responsibility too that if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. And if you hate your neighbor, then you really don't love God. And there's, a, there's this balance and understanding about how they go together. So the reason that we're, we can deal with this is because we have been born over again. We are no longer stuck in that fall because we've been born again. It's that, that image of a new creation and a new creature that is being brought about by the New Testament writers. We can live out the liberating lifestyle because of this. The old barriers, uh, often continually said by the writers, stuff like race, whether you're male and female, things that culture speaks against and creates domination in, they're broken in the New Testament witness and in the new life in Christ. There, there are texts that say stuff like, there's neither male nor female, rich nor poor, slave nor free. We're new in Christ. It's a new kingdom. It's a new way of being. And it's different than our culture would try to make it. Again, we look at this kind of stuff and we look at Old Testament and we hear what some people say that the Old Testament says, but if it does not line up with what the New Testament says too, we're missing it somewhere. Because <laughs> he's the same God. Uh, the kingdom of God has come to the earth and is continuing to come at this point. And there's a new way of being. It's a radical new life that we're called to live. We're called to live differently, countercultural, in the context of a fallen world. And uh, as a, a thought bringing this to a practical understanding is today we say, well, what about roles and how does this work? And, you know, there's no text that man takes out the garbage and the woman does the dishes. There's no text. There's just the reality and understanding of how roles work in the way that we work together and encourage one another to accomplish the greater good, the greater cause of Christ in the world. And also our families being healthy units and these other kind of things. So that's for you to decide. And I've had people in pre-engagement ask me things like, so, you know, what, what you know, you're, you're the head of the house, right? How does that work? The reality is, you know, I 
And my wife and I, we work together and we decide how to make it work. As long as we are on the same page and Christ is glorified in the midst of that relationship, then it is what it is. If my wife wants to say I'm the head of the house, then that's fine. I'll be. But I'm not going to assert myself and call myself that in a way that gets misinterpreted and misunderstood. Because we understand, if we really understand headship in the New Testament, which is a whole other discussion, uh, we realize it's not uh, an unhealthy thing. Uh, so, um, that is what we're talking about today. Uh, we're called to a radical new life in the context of a fallen world, if you want to fill in that blank. And um, there's nothing about distribution of labor in the Bible, if you want to fill in that as well. So, that is it.